And the Philippian jailer cries, what shall I do to be saved? And Paul preaches the gospel to him. And he and his entire household is baptized and they all become Christians. And that is how the church at Philippi is, is founded. So fast forward a few years later and we come to verses 3, 4, and 5, which you know, pastors always feel responsibility in the first sermon to give you background. <laughs> uh, but the real point that I want you to notice is verses 3, 4, and 5 and the verses 9, 10, and 11. 3, 4, and 5. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And the word there, you might have heard of it before, the Greek word koinonia, because of your koinonia in the gospel. Now koinonia is variously translated. Sometimes it's translated as fellowship. Right now we are having as a church a worshipful koinonia, hopefully. Sometimes koinonia is referred to the Lord's Supper, where we share. It says, are we not um, sharing in the body of Christ, the koinonia of Christ? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is it chapter 10 or chapter 11? Koinonia. But many times in Paul's day, that word referred to a, a business partnership. Koinonia was a business partnership in which all of those who were involved would share in the responsibilities of the business and on the other hand would share in the, the financial responsibilities of the business. And Paul is saying here, effectively, you and I are in the, the gospel partnership business. Uh, and he says something similar later on in verse 7. He says, all of you share in God's grace with me. Another instance of the word Koinonia. We are in the gospel partnership, grace partnership business, and that is evidenced by the generous um, gift that you provided for me, which I'm very, very thankful. And the question I want to ask you is, is that true of us? I discovered a missionary couple this week while I was reading a blog that linked to their blog Gil and Amy Medina. Never heard of them before. Small-time missionaries who started out in the country of Tanzania in 2001. And she's the one who blogs at gilandamy.blogspot.com. She writes there a three-part article that basically is a very honest reflection on why, on how difficult it is for American missionaries to speak truthfully to their supporters back in the States. Here's her story. In 2001, they were placed in what turned out to be a very unhealthy missions team. It was their first taste of ministry. They were in their early 20s. It might have been the very first time they were, had been out of the country. And they're drowning. I mean, they're, I saw their, their prayer, their original prayer card. She put a picture of it on the blog. And they look like they're 19 and 20 years old. And they, it's their first taste of ministry. They're dying. And do you think they wrote that in their missionary updates when they sent it back home? She reflects back. 14 years ago, what if I had been completely transparent? Instead of writing, pray for Amy because she's struggling emotionally, what if I had written in our email updates that Amy is on the verge of a complete nervous breakdown? that we are traveling to Kenya 
during our Christmas break so that Amy can talk to a counselor because she's on the verge of an utter and complete collapse. And she needs to be on anti-anxiety medication, ASAP. What if I wrote instead of, our ministry is struggling? What if I had told the truth that the church we are working with is on the verge of splitting? That we are being ferociously criticized by our team members and, and we feel like absolute abject failures. Why didn't I write that, you wonder? Because missionaries live in a constant state of fear that you are going to drop them. That's what she said. We have missionary friends. We hear this all the time. Uh, a, a friend who confided in a pastor's wife about some of her own personal struggles. And no sooner did she do so, in the blink of an eye, uh, they're pulled off the field. You know? We heard stories of friends who lost support overnight because the church disagreed with some inconsequential ministry decision that they, that they made. When, when the report goes back that things are not going very well, we immediately start to hear murmurs stateside uh, that aren't national missionaries cheaper after all? And aren't they more effective after all? And are they more, more strategic? And you know what it feels like on our end? It feels like one false move and you are disposable. She goes on. Missions in America is brewed in a pot of extremely high expectations. You, get your, you go through your missionary assessment and you get your missionary prayer card. You get the picture of you and your husband and your kids. And your picture is placarded on hundreds of church foyers all across the country and on thousands, maybe, of refrigerators all across the country. And all of your donors back home want to hear of some immediate return on their investment. So, but what do you tell people when, when your strategies fail? as they often do. When a missionary spends three months planning an event and only three people show up, should we be upfront about that? When the church that you're there to plant doesn't get planted, or when the church that did get planted starts to fall apart, or when the exciting new believer you've been writing about in all your prayer updates ends up stealing from you, which happens with some regularity, what then? If we didn't have the letter of Philippians, you would never hear the incredible, the massive sense of relief that the Apostle Paul feels when this church doesn't drop him. I, you, if you read through the whole book, you, it comes up again and again. He's so glad. Thank you. You did not, you did not bail on me. And it would have been the most natural thing to do. And remember, they're in a, a shame and culture society. In the ancient world, you, you don't associate with shameful people. You don't disreputable people. You want to have nothing to do with them. Getting imprisoned, well, that is a pretty disreputable thing to do. And imprisonment carried with it a great deal of social stigma. It would, the most natural thing for the Philippians would be to cut ties. I don't want to be associated with this guy. And how effective is his ministry after all? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't have signed up for him. I mean, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, part of this. And he's just over and over again, like, praising God, saying, thank you for 
koinonia. You're in koinonia with me. And so the question I pose to you this morning is, do your missionaries have that kind of support, feel that kind of support from you? That this thing that we are engaged in is is a deep, Christ-centered, for the sake of the kingdom, koinonia. That we are in this, we are behind you, we are all in. We are all in. In sickness and in health, for better or for worse, in imprisonment and nervous breakdown, we are totally behind you, 100%. And it's okay for you to fail. It's okay for you to, to botch a lot of stuff over on the mission field. It's okay, because we're not going to pull you out of the game at the, you know, at the drop of a hat. Do they feel that? Do they know that from you? Famous, most famous missionary of the last couple hundred years, William Carey, the year 1793. He set sail for India, where he and his family would serve for the next 40 years there, bringing the gospel for the first time to India. He becomes the pioneer of the 19th century Christian's mission movement. All of us, not all of us, but some of us know about good old William Carey. That's well known. Less well known is the fact that it took the guy five years before anybody came to Christ. Actually, it took him five and a half years. That's over 2,000 days. How many churches in America would still be supporting a missionary five and a half years in like that? Would you? I, I wanted to try to make this very practical because oftentimes opening sermons in a book are not very practical. What I would recommend to you is when you get your missionary prayer letters back in, read between the lines. Because no, they're not able to tell you the complete truth. You've got to read between the lines. Amy's struggling emotionally. Well, do a little digging there and just imagine what that actually means. Read between the lines and pray between the lines. The second thing I would say is that if you are going to drop missionaries, drop your support for them, please communicate that. Communicate why to them because their minds are immediately going to go to the worst case scenarios. All of a sudden, a supporter drops them and they're going to be wondering, did we do something to offend them? Did we offend the supporting church or the supporting family? Are we not effective enough? They're just like us. Their minds go to the worst case scenario. And they just happen to be, oh, half a world away (laughs) where they can't do anything about it. I think if the Apostle Paul was alive today, he would say, pick your missionaries well. Be choosy. Be very, very discriminatory on what missionaries you choose to support. And then partner with them for the next decade. Partner with them for the next two decades. Let them know that Come hell or high water, we are sticking with you through this. And I understand there's situations where you get in financial straits and you have to make difficult, difficult financial decisions. Um, but before you drop your missionaries, why not drop the morning stop, stop at Starbucks before you cut them off? Why not? Because what Paul wants us to be a part of is this great... Koinonia for the kingdom. And you have to imagine, if they feel that from you, if they know that they've got people back in the States 
who are that committed to them, then they will be like Paul. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. He's so hyperbolic, so over the top. That's how they feel when they have that kind of support, when there's a gospel partnership. So that's point number one. Okay, point number two is verses 9 through 11. Let's read 9 through 11 together. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound. More abounding love. How? It may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Uh, he prays for a greater capacity to love, and we run that through our modern filter and think, oh yeah, like more emotion. We just always associate love with an emotion. It's so rare that we associate love with what he writes here, knowledge, a thinking love, and wisdom, uh, a wise, discriminating love. He says, that's what I, when I pray for you, I don't pray generic love prayers for you. I pray for an overflowing thinking, reasoning, discerning, uh, morally discerning. That's one of the things he's praying for. Moral discernment. What is the best, most loving thing for me to do in this situation that I'm facing? That's the question that we're always wrestling with, isn't it? Do I fire that employee who's doing poor work? Or do I give them a second chance? Or do I give them a third chance? Or a fourth chance? What's the most loving thing to do? What's the, what's the most loving thing to do? Should I take a stand on this issue, which I think is somewhat morally objectionable? Or is this an instance where I should just stay silent? You know, better to live to fight another day. What should I do? What's the most loving thing to do? Some of you doctors... You guys are always wrestling both with complex bioethical questions and you're stuck in the middle of this great big hospital machinery where you've got an administration that's thinking about the bottom line, the buck, and you are trying to think about the health of the patient. What do I do? What's the most loving thing for me to do? Some of you are accountants and we've had conversations how you wrestle with the accounting practices of some of your some of your clients it's it's hard to know and it was hard for them to know the apostle paul is saying here that they lived in a world much like our own they lived in a world where moral lines were often blurry and distorted and they lived in a world where the bible doesn't tell you what to do in every instance it doesn't attempt to delineate for us exactly what we should do in every single circumstance. It tells us that love is supposed to be the baseline, and we're then supposed to ask ourselves the question, what is the best, most excellent thing that love would do for my neighbor here? It's a great prayer. It's not generic. It's... it's... Okay, here is a headline that uh, I read this week and made me want to read further. Cancer survivor creates 
empathy cards she wishes she would have been sent while, when she was sick. So graphic designer Emily McDowell, age 24, was diagnosed with stage 3 Hodgkin's lymphoma. She went through nine months of treatment and at the end of it realized, quote, the most difficult part of my illness wasn't losing my hair or being erroneously called sir by grocery store clerks. It was the loneliness and isolation I felt when many of my close friends and family members disappeared because they didn't know what to say or said the absolute wrong thing to say without even realizing it. This is one of those instances where I wish, as a preacher, I had my PowerPoint uh, slides up here because I could show you that the the cards are, are much more powerful if you could see them in their graphic design capacity. But I'll read them to you. And and remember that these are from, supposed to be from a friend, an empathizer, to a cancer patient. Which one do I want to go with first? Number, I'll go number one. Front of the card. I promise I won't refer to your illness as a journey, unless, of course, someone is taking you on a cruise. Number two. When life gives you lemons, I won't tell you a story of my cousin's friend who died of lemons. Think about it. Number three, I'm sorry you're sick. I want you to know that I will never try to sell you on some random treatment I read about on the internet. Number four, One chemo down. One more chemo down. Let's celebrate with whatever doesn't taste disgusting. (laughs) Or number five. I'm I'm really sorry I haven't been in touch. I didn't know what to say. What is the best thing to say? I mean, isn't the whole line of cards an indicator that there's a whole lot of wrong things to say? And love is all about thinking very carefully with what you want to communicate to that other person. And love doesn't take cliched phrases, oh, you're going through a journey, and plaster it over other people who are are hurting. Love thinks very, very carefully. When he prays for that you would be able to know what is best, he's praying that you would not only be able to know the best moral decision to make, but the, the best word to speak in a given situation. And then thirdly, I think he's saying something to us about to know what, uh, what's best in terms of spending our time, our values. How do those get reflected in all of the use of our free time? So D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, he made this point in one of his Philippian sermons. He said, he said, I sometimes think that the whole art of life is the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, and what to put on one side. What to concentrate on. How prone we are to dissipate our energies and to waste our time by forgetting what is vital and giving ourselves to second and third-rate issues. Paul says, what you need is just this, the power to concentrate on that one thing which is vital, or those two things which are truly kingdom vital, to leave everything else out and to keep steadily to that one thing or things which matter. 
And you've heard that, I think, lots before in the typical time management illustrations. So Stephen Covey, I think, is the one, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He's the one who came up with the rocks, pebbles, sand illustration. You've heard that one before. The motivational speaker pulls out a clear bucket and he sets it on the table and he takes a a handful of rocks and he fills the bucket bucket up to the very top with these large rocks. And he asks the audience, is the is the bucket filled? Is it full? And they, of course, say, yes, it's full. So then he pulls out a can of, of medium-sized pebbles. He pours the pebbles over the rocks, and they infiltrate all the open space. Is the bucket full? He asks, and they say, yes, the bucket's full. Then he pulls out the can of fine sand. He pours the fine sand in, and at the end of it, you see that all of them fit if they're put in the right order, if you reverse the order, then the, the large rocks end up being left out. If you go sand first, pebbles next, big, big rocks on the top. And the point of Stephen Covey and others would be, you've know, you got to get the big rocks in first. The most important things of your life have to be in first. The big difference, though, is that Stephen Covey's big rocks are not ours. I mean, what are, what are the big rocks when it's all said and done? Like, what would Jesus say are the big rocks for us? I mean, isn't it worship, personal worship, family worship, corporate worship? And isn't it service? I mean, serving other people effectively in the name of Jesus. I hate that the Millers are leaving, but I am really happy for the Millers because they get to go to arguably the best church in the United States. They get to hear, I think he'll go down as maybe the most influential preacher of the late 20th century, early 21st century. I've quoted him ad infinitum from the pulpit before. Good old Tim Keller. What I love about, uh, Jeff and I were having a conversation earlier this week, and he said, this is what's so cool about Redeemer. I mean, yeah, Tim's great from the pulpit, but these people really care about serving New York City for the sake of the kingdom. He says they are utilizing technology to help their people do this. So there's actually an app that you can pull up on your phone, and you look at the soup kitchen that is four blocks away. And I mean, part of the great uh, greatness of a big city like that is you don't need a car. 25-minute, 15-minute walk, any place you want to go or... 20-minute ride on the subway. You pull up the app. You look at the soup kitchen. You, they will tell you, do we need help right now? And you're like, they need help. I'm there. Isn't that great? Isn't that just, isn't that a church just trying to help its people put the big rocks in? Isn't that... I love it. Uh, pull up this, this place. Oh, they need somebody to pick this up at the grocery store. Bing, I've, I've got it covered. Um, I just think that's exactly what churches ought to be doing. Where's the All Saints app? <laughs> I mean, the great thing about the city of Boise is there's a lot of ministry opportunities in the city. Love in the name of Christ is, is fabulous. There's so many things you could be, you can be doing on the weekend. We have somebody who works here for the United Way, the Treasure Valley. We've got so many people in the different, there's, but are those the rocks that are going in? Jeff said this, and I totally agree. He says, 
once you get away from a place, you're really able to see the idols of a place. What are the idols of Boise? It's totally family. It's out the outdoors. It's um, our backyards. <laughs> he said, and the idols of Boise are not the idols of New York City. Idols of New York City are professional success, money. I don't think that, is money that big of an idol in Boise? Yeah. It's our kids. They're our biggest idols here. There's something about getting away and, and saying, hey, um, what are the kingdom rocks? That's what Paul is praying for, that they would be able to discern what is best, what is most excellent. Um, all right, I, I'm going to say a couple more words at the, the table, but I'll give you this challenge. Why not pray this prayer for somebody? Verses 9, 10, and 11. For a college or high school graduate, I'm not, I think graduation cards are, you know, not that great. But what if you wrote on the inside of the graduation card for, for that person that you love? I am committed to praying if, uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11 every day for the next month for you. Because you're about to head out into the world and you're going to be uh, slammed with all of these different parts of life that are now going to come flooding at you. And I'm going to pray that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you might be able to discern what is best and to live with that kind of... That would be, I think that would be one of the sweetest things you could do for a graduate. It's one of the sweetest things that your pastor could pray for you. I get caught up in the trap, and you probably do too when we pray for each other, the generic prayers. Oh God, make them more holy. Oh God, help them be more loving. But what about just like a gospel-centered, focused, specific prayer, like verses 9 through 11? That's what the Apostle Paul did. Okay, we'll have the musicians come up. We'll sing... One more Trinitarian hymn, and then a couple words at the table. There is a high-rise building in Krakow, Poland, that was, they started construction on it in 1975. They completed, or stopped, rather, construction on it in 1981. It is 30 stories tall. It's 400 feet or so. And it's nothing but a skeleton that sticks up over the Krakow skyline. And in fact, they have named it, the locals have named it Skeletor, after the He-Man villain and Masters of the Universe. Because this is a giant skeleton. What ended up happening, I suppose it was financed by the Polish government. And the, in 81, it came and they couldn't do any more. And, and it just, it has sat there now since 1975 for, for 40 years. Just this unfinished construction project. What I want to say coming to the table is, I know that there are some of you here this morning, it was brutal just to get out of bed. You did not want to come to worship. You feel so discouraged about your spiritual state and condition. You feel so discouraged by uh, sin, besetting sin that keeps just beating you down. You feel like you can never get out from underneath it. And I believe God's word to you this morning is, is verse 6 of Philippians 1, verse 6. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it unto completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is 100% sure of that fact. How can he be so sure? Because it's not uh, financed by Polish architects or (laughs) Polish government. Yes, he who began a good work in you. Like the whole thing is Christ's work in you from beginning to end. From the very first time that you heard the gospel, believed the gospel, to your maybe slow, painfully slow growth and holiness and growth and grace, to your final resurrection glorification, all of that is Christ. And you may not feel the least bit sure that you're going to turn out okay, but Paul says, I am a thousand percent confident. Because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And you just have to remind yourself that. When you're taking bread and wine this morning, remind yourself, he who began a good work in me will see it through to completion. He's a good architect. He's a faithful builder. 